I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 110 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Ryan Louie. Ryan is a PhD and a board-certified psychiatrist focused on mental health impact of cybersecurity and the psychiatry of entrepreneurship. Ryan received his MD and PhD degrees from the Stanford University of Medicine and completed residency training in psychiatry at the University of Hawaii Department of Psychiatry. Ryan completed an internship with the Office of International Health and Biodefense at the U.S. Department of State and was the recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship to Japan. Ryan has published academic articles in psychiatry and cell biology and is the inventor of the patented microtubular lumen-cast nanowire technology. In this episode, we discuss the stigmas of mental health, coping skills, the economic costs of not addressing mental health, neurodiversity, handling COVID-19 stress, removing job pressures from information security, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Okay, Ryan, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Yeah, thank you very much, Doug. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm excellent. It's uh, it's been a harrowing year as we're getting towards the end of it, and it's it's interesting because uh, the you know the the days feel like they go on forever, but the weeks go by very fast. It's it's very odd <laughs> odd time these days in in the perspective of how time works. Absolutely, just very unprecedented different times. And, uh, and I hope everyone out there is uh, keeping well and staying safe. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the things I really, you know, reached out to you about is to talk about wellness and particularly around mental health wellness, because it's something that does affect, affect the industry. And it's something we definitely, I feel don't talk about enough. And as I mentioned, even before we hit record that this is kind of my mission for, you know, my new year's resolutions for 2021 is to remove the stigma, talk more about mental health, uh, discuss my journeys with it, but really kind of get more people from different angles talking about it. And your name came up consistently as I searched for, um, you know, the, you know, the, the people that have talked about it and seen that you've done a number of things of RSA. How did you get involved with this area of cybersecurity and, you know, talking about it from the mental health issues? What, what drew you into it? Yeah, well, first of all, Doug, uh, thank you so much for bringing up this, uh, topic of mental health and cybersecurity. Uh, I agree 100% with what you just mentioned, that this is something that we as community need to share more thoughts and to share ideas and to forge a new way forward to create something new in terms of a conversation, breaking down the stigma, and letting people know that not only is it okay, but it's a requirement for themselves to take care of themselves. So, so that's a really great thing that you're doing here. Um, I first got interested in the cybersecurity because I think fundamentally I was interested in the idea of security of a person. Uh, I've uh, in, in the patient work that I've done in uh, both psychiatry at the hospital and also in the clinic, working with patients and their wellness and their well-being all shared the common thread of being safe. Whether it's a homeless a person who's, who needs to feel safe out in the streets and knowing where to get food and shelter, or whether it's someone uh, working at home and trying to feel safe from a, from a work boundaries and family life point of view, or whether it's a student 
being at school, trying to feel safe and asking the professor the questions that the student wants to ask and being in a safe environment to do that. That was always something that was on my mind. And I looked towards uh, the world of security and the, the intersections of psychiatry and technology and security. And I and I found my way going into cybersecurity. So I think there's a lot we can learn from each other as industries. So uh, I've been learning a lot from everyone in the community. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. And I, I, I'm curious to hear your, your opinions, thoughts, or views on why it's been such a difficult, uh, you know, one, is it, I guess maybe the question really is, is it, is cybersecurity different than other, you know, professions that make it more difficult to talk about the issues around mental health? Is there a acuity that goes with it in our, in our industry or frequency, you know, is there something different about cybersecurity that the mental health issues go unnoticed? That's a great question, Doug. Uh, before I got into uh, cybersecurity, I was actually looking back at our own field, uh, my uh, my studies in medical school and in residency training and in the world of medicine and healthcare. We actually share a lot of similarities between the healthcare field and the cybersecurity space. Um, both industries uh, are are involving several uh, different uh, uh, specialties of, of people with expertise, and everyone's working together in teams. Oftentimes, there's not a lot of time to make decisions, and all the information is oftentimes not known. And there's uh, extreme pressures to perform well, and uh, and then there's uh, in both fields there's tremendous burnout in, in in both the medical field and in cybersecurity. So in some ways, our industries are unique in the sense of uh, of what we do as as uh, physicians, as people in healthcare, as cybersecurity professionals, and and we both share the aspect that we can't go out and just share all the information that we, we see at work. It's, uh, we have confidentiality, we have HIPAA, we have uh, um, uh, protected information. And so that causes isolation in people's minds and the type of work that they do and the type of support they receive. So it's a, it's a very specific and unique set of circumstances and industries for people, but also people in healthcare and cybersecurity are humans first. So in that sense, Everyone shares the basic sense of wanting to be well and to be healthy. Yeah, I think that you, you hit on a couple of points that that I've seen certainly as well. It's it's you know that my my wife has has seen me grow through the industry since we've known each other. Uh, you know, I really started getting deep. I was 25 years in IT services before really about the last 15 years getting more heavily in the cyber side. And I thought you know it's interesting now looking back. Um, the things I can talk about <laughs> with her at work. There's a lot I have to just leave behind because I see things within you know, very public organizations or things that are in the news that I can't comment on. And sometimes I want to vent about it and I can't. And I don't have that outlet even sometimes in my inner circles just to be like, God, today sucked and here's why. It's just it's always in these vague kind of things about maybe attributing to a, to a particular cyber attack from a from a, a threat actors. Like we just had everything with the solar winds issue that came up recently. And I had a lot of vacation planned. Um, and I had to take a lot of that right off the table as that thing developed. And all of a sudden was focusing on that. And, and luckily, you know, the people around me were very supportive and understood that this is this is part of my job. But I can imagine that that as you said, with with the medical field and with people in cybersecurity, it's sometimes you get the weight of your world on your shoulders. And there's not always good outlets to talk about that. So you know, what are some of the things that you've seen work for people in, in industries that do have this type of pressure on them find ways to to kind of cope and almost you know process these things because it can be some some pretty heavy stuff at times. 
Absolutely, Doug. You brought up a great point that there's things that we work with on a daily basis that we literally can't share with anyone else outside. And um, and because of that, it has a very isolative and very um, um, uh, sort of like a singular type of uh, a feeling in terms of what we can share and what we can't. And, um, and that could be its own very unique stressor as well. When I look at what kind of things organizations and people can do uh, uh, to help out with things like wellness and to, to avoid burnout and to make people be uh, more resilient, I think back to one of the times when I was a medical student and, um, and, uh, and the head doctor on our team set out on day one, he introduced everyone on the team and he said that I want everyone to finish their work in this type of time frame. But at the same time, if anyone has a workload that's too much, he almost required everyone to say, hey, you know, I've got too much on my plate. Let's uh, let's have someone else help out. He says, we'll do this for everyone. And by him saying that on day one, right at the orientation meeting, it lifted up a burden from everyone. And he, he created a culture such that everyone was feel to, feeling uh, ready to uh, just open up to each other and say that, hey, you know, this is getting pretty stressful. I'm not sure how to do this. And like, he, he generated that culture. And because of that, that rotation was was uh, very good, very good. He he built a great culture of of safety, and so that was one of the earliest times I was thinking of, hey, what did he just create? He created a zone of safety. Yeah, it's it, now you really bring up a good point when it comes to organizational leadership and creating that culture that allows this to be okay. And again, I've come up in a very competitive both. Um, in the industries that I've been in, in geographically coming up in New York City, where it was, you know, you work hard, you play hard, but you work really hard. And I found as I took more leadership and management roles, I really had to set the tone for people to fail to say, hey, I'm going to push you hard. But if you're going to break, I have to know because I need you at your best. And if you need, you know, an extra couple of days of recoup or an afternoon, I don't care what it is. I don't want to, you know, have you die of death by a thousand cuts here. Um, you know, I go back, get get yourself settled and come back. And it was, it was, it was also really hard for, I think, for some of the staff to hear that. Cause like, no, you know, what, what's the catch? I'm like, there is no catch. <laughs> I need you at your best. I need you to go check out. And there's been a stigma around that. Um, is, is that something that is, is, is part of American culture? Is there something that in business in general, that it, it's systemic <laughs> that, that we push people too far to burn out? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Doug. The idea of what's the catch, that's always something back of people's minds. And it's been something that's been with the mental health field for, for ages. It's the idea that uh, with the mysteries of the mind and with uh, mental health conditions, they're not visible. It's not like you could take an x-ray and, and look at there's like a, something needs to be fixed in terms of a broken bone or let's say a stick of temperature. Of course, there are you know medical tests and laboratory uh, uh, examinations and tests that we do to help out with mental health. And there are diagnostic tests as well. But largely, it's due to uh, an interview where we talk with patients and understand how they're really feeling inside. And I think a lot of people feel that that's sort of an uncertainty. It's, uh, it's the unknown. It makes people scared in terms of what's actually going on inside. So exactly what we said, uh, what's the catch? Is it something that, um, that, that a company truly values us as people? Or is it something that's just sort of like in a, in a manual of, of, of company policies? And this is what we offer in, in case of you know, A, give B or stuff like that. But, um, but like you mentioned, I think the most important thing is to be there as people to support your team and yourself in terms of mental health. And more importantly, show by example from the, from the leaders at the top and all levels throughout the organization of examples of taking care of oneself either taking time off, allowing people to get some self-care, things like that. 
I'm sure you've, you've worked with a number of different organizations as you stay in the field. I mean, what, what are some of the more direct things that you've seen as impacts from leadership not taking these stances and, and quite frankly, letting this to continue to happen? And I'm certainly not pointing fingers. It's shared blame, and I've, I've done it myself and had to even self-check or push people. But, you know, what, what are some of the things that we see um, when these risks aren't addressed? Right, right. Well, um, in the literature, in the past three or four or five years, the past few years, there's been a lot of academic papers published in the medical field talking about burnout. Burnout of medical students, residents in training, faculty, uh, experienced physicians all across the board, and not just physicians, people in healthcare overall, nursing staff, support staff, everyone. It's, it's the idea that fundamentally it's, it's a, um, it's a idea of culture and of well-being. Once Things are not addressed at a very surface level. It could even be a very small little thing, but little habits uh, build up into bigger habits, which build into a sustained culture. So once things are neglected, once things are not taken care of or not really taken seriously, people begin to fester in terms of doubt and distrust. And once there's not that trust, that's the one thing that is the glue that holds all things together, even when things are not known. It's, it's the idea that you could trust your colleague. Trust uh, a friend, trust your family, and uh, trust yourself. So, within if there's aren't, if there aren't those uh, things in place, that trust erodes, and, and that's where it becomes a slippery slope. Yeah, I mean that's that's where I've certainly seen you know folks that have struggled with it, and, and my issues with anxiety and depression at times, you know, from work, you know, things that you carry home, and it, it like I said, it, it impacts other relationships. It's very hard, I think, for folks that are in cybersecurity to say, hey, you know, I'm just going to turn off the laptop and, and walk away for the evening. Right. <laughs> a lot of them carry right. we, We've seen, you know, people suffering with these mental conditions, uh, mental health conditions are at the highest risk group for people to have suicide, uh, you know, issues. And, you know, just I, I know there was a study from last year from Nominate that was about, so it's almost, yeah, it's almost two years old now, but you know, they did a global study of cybersecurity professionals and 91% of the CISO surveyed said they had high levels of stress. They were suffering from uh, moderate or high, you know, levels of stress impact on their lives. And, you know, 60% really disconnected from their work roles, you know, 80, almost 90% were working more than 40 hours a week. Um, in this almost not that same percentage, not having a break at their job. It's, 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 it's kind of, you know, in, Silly to me in the sense that we would push people that are this important in leadership and risk management roles in the organizations off the cliff because it just, you know, just from the business aspects of it, to have that that person not on their game again, um, have them suffering from things that can put them out from work for an extended period of time and you, you lose that leadership or just go on to a new job. And it was what we've seen with security leadership now for years is this, this revolving door effect. You know, it's no wonder things aren't getting done, but have have there been more studies trying to say, okay, well, what are the financial impacts of this? Besides, yes, we want to have care for people as humans, but for me, I'm always interested to say, hey, there's got to be an underlying financial crisis <laughs> going on that's that's running in parallel with this at the same time. Absolutely, it's the cost that's unknown, uh, in addition to the financial economic cost that could be the most worrisome. I believe the FBI has a, has a website that has a, a victims of internet crimes to report the incidents and to uh, get assistance. And uh, and every year they generate a report, and it's in the billions. It's like it's like um, a tremendous, tremendous high amount of economic costs, and those are the ones that are reported. 
And but what's not figured into those numbers is what's the psychological, psychiatric, mental health impacts of those numbers. Oftentimes, there's lingering effects afterwards. People might feel um, after effects. Uh, I'm, I'm actually thinking right now that in these internet crime situations, there could be a digital analog of PTSD. Things like hypervigilance, avoidance, um, and nightmares and flashbacks about bad experiences that happened, that, that could certainly happen, I think. And certainly things like depression and anxiety can also multiply when there's like internet crimes happening. And that's for victims of uh, cybercrime. I mean, with first responders, like we uh, talked about at the beginning, that there are things that, that first responders see that uh, they may not be able to tell anyone else uh, just because of the nature of the incident. And it could be very, very difficult mentally to be able to handle those situations. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, having worked... Um, you know, so I always say, you know, with, with some of the things you do in cybersecurity, particularly as incident response, there's just things you can't unsee at times. And sometimes unhear un, un, un or, or feel, you know, I've had small business owners crying on the phone to me, like, how am I, how's my business going to survive? This was, you know, 30 years, it's it's over from my rent. It's, it's pretty heavy stuff that you have to, you, you kind of have to deal with. But, you know, for me, I always try to find ways to manage it. But I guess that also goes out to the kind of view is not all stress is bad. I mean, stress can give us kind of a an, an area of um, focus. It can, you know, if there's some external stress that's going to get you going. But there's is there, and I've looked at some of the talks they've given about, and if I'm, I'm saying it incorrectly, is the uh, Yerkes-Dodson curve where, you know, you, you kind of get some stress and you, you kind of get into your zone, but then there's, you know, it's, it's a bell curve and at a certain point you get diminishing returns. Absolutely. Yeah. When I, when I describe uh, what this feels like exactly with Yerkes-Dodson curve, that was, uh, I think it was like in the early 1900s, so over a hundred years ago, but it also applies uh, right now. It's the idea that if you look at the length, uh, the type of stress, uh, over time or throughout uh, a certain situation, if there's uh, if there's not enough stress, if, if something's not stressful, then it becomes kind of boring. They feel like, yeah, you know, they could do the job and they could take care of it and uh, it's, it's, it's doable, but it's not really stimulating. So it's sort of boring. And then on the other end of it, it's like it's too much stress. It's very, very overwhelming and, uh, and they can't, it, it gets to past the breaking point of things. And then what is right in the middle of the bell curve is the, the optimum point where there's uh, just the right amount of stress. It's definitely stressful that, you know, puts people, uh, you know, maybe pushes them outside their immediate uh, box of a region of comfort. And then, uh, but it allows them to grow. So it's very stimulating. So, um, yeah, so certainly. And I also bring up in, back in physics, uh, when we looked at the, uh, how materials uh, work, when you stretch a piece of metal or a piece of plastic, you get to a point where uh, the material does not uh, go back to where it used to be after you stop stretching it and it becomes permanently deformed. And then if you stretch it even more, it comes to a point where it snaps and it breaks. And so I think there's a very uh, real human analog to that in terms of what happens in terms of materials and people. Yeah. You know, and what, you know, again, we're, oh, there, there was a disclaimer that that'll go out as this uh, podcast goes live too. And with all these, you know, this is, these are definitely for informational purposes. And if you need help, definitely get help. But, you know, what are some of the things people should think about as I say, gosh, you know, I need, I, I don't know where to start to try to seek help because it is a little daunting and, and, you know, whether it be because of insurance issues or family issues, it's sometimes again that stigma is there. What what are you know what would you recommend that people take as as a first step um, to start seeking some ways to help learn how to cope with these these types of issues? Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. Um, I've always felt that uh, having 
a plan of health is very important. So that means uh, for everyone to stay in touch with the people involved in their health care. So whether it's a counselor or a therapist or a primary care physician, or even if they've never seen anyone in mental health before, maybe they've just seen their, uh, their uh, family physician. That's a great place to start. Have that conversation with their with their doctor and their medical team to say, hey, you know, these are the kind of stressors that are happening, and, and keep them informed. Keep them uh, uh, keep the communication going so that they'll be able to help you along the ways to be able to uh, get that that feedback and to uh, uh, provide care uh, each step of the way. Outside of that, I would recommend uh, finding, uh, let's say, you almost want to have, let's say, uh, uh, a mini team in your mind, you might say. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. It could just be maybe one, two, three people for various different parts of uh, a person's life in terms of what that person means to them from a meaningful trust point of view and be able to provide that that resource to themselves to say, yeah, if there's any need for any help for any of these reasons, that person A is going to be for this, and person B is going to be for this, and person C will be for this. So, so to have that plan in place for safety. And of course, uh, like you mentioned, Doug, if there's any times of an emergency, let's say danger to yourself or danger to other people, just not feeling safe, um, any suicidal thoughts, always go ahead and call 911. That's the number to call. No shame in doing that. That's what they're there for, uh, and that's uh, what we do to keep people safe if they need that. Yeah, this, you know, touches on a lot of things that, that I've learned or, or I've done more research and really, I guess, try to understand better, let's say, is the aspect of of, um, of self-care. And, you know, I, I think I always thought of things as like, okay, well, I'll go to the gym because there was a very, you know, maybe an aesthetic outcome to it. <laughs> you know, definitely felt good, but it's like, oh, I want to look better. And there was, I think that's where a lot of people did certain types of exercises. And then when I really started looking over things the last year or so about, or really last couple of years, I would say, around self-care and how that's developed. Um, I found that really interesting because it, it is, there are things that I found that were helpful. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on some of these types of things, you know, where where they can be beneficial or maybe, um, or, or could they even be possibly over, uh, be used to overcompensate for when people should really maybe go to another level. So I guess defining it would be helpful, but what what is your view of self-care and, and how it can help individuals? Yeah, so uh, my general philosophy when I work with uh, patients is that um, I always look to see what's important for them as as people from a big picture point of view. Different things work for different people. Different people have different preferences, different fears, different concerns, and different clinical conditions. So we work together to try to put together a mutual plan that's safe and that the patient feels comfortable doing and, and that would be effective clinically. And uh, my general approach is that, um, like with everything, let's say with technology or with uh, uh, any kind of things in everyday life, there's always risks and benefits. There's always uh, double usages. There's multiple ways something can be used for good or for bad. And we always have to have that conversation. Let's say, for example, social media. It can be very tremendously uh, useful. Uh, like this uh, this phone call here, uh, uh, Doug contacted me through uh, Twitter. And uh, if, if it weren't for that, I probably wouldn't have, have met Doug. So it's, it's been a great thing. But at the same time, we also know that in Twitter, there's a lot of really bad negative stuff that's going on. So to be able to know where that boundary is in terms of, of how it's useful for people and how, it's, uh, how it may not be uh, useful. So to be able to always judge that and always ask ourselves, you know, how is this working for us? Is it good? Is it bad? What's the upside? What's the downside? And is it good for us? Uh, but that being said, if it's not harmful and if it's compatible with other parts of a care plan, I think it's, uh, it would be overall in general to uh, be uh, something to consider to, to help out. So it could be things like self-care, maybe a digital app. 
And the most important thing is to stay engaged, stay interested, and stay focused in terms of yourself as a priority. Yeah. And it's it's funny as I started looking at more management leadership in about how the impacts of, again, going back to talking about creating a culture and kind of um, being a little bit more vulnerable, I would guess is the best way to sum it up as a leader. But I found, you know, even as I've worked for different organizations and I've, I've even said to a few, hey, you might, am I doing a good enough job? I haven't heard from you. And they said, well, you know, we'll let you know. You'll hear from us when you do something bad. But other than that, just assume you're doing things okay. I'm like, you know, every now and then a thank you goes so far, <laughs> even for somebody like me that wouldn't seem like that's the thing. Like I just very, you know, my current workplace at Slack, I got two very nice messages from, from senior leadership over right before the holiday break, thanking me for some recent work. And I was like, I, that made me feel great. It was such a, a small gesture that went a long way. Um, that I, I think people miss and it helped me actually then not feel guilty about walking away and turning off from the work. I'm like, okay, I did, I did my duty today and I didn't have to go too far. So it, it helped me set some of those boundaries. Are, are there other things that you've seen that can be helpful in that, that sense, both as the receiver and, and giver of these types of things to help build culture? That's an excellent example, Doug, the idea of saying a thank you. The, the power of saying thanks, the power of, of a person spending a moment out of a very busy uh, day to compose a message, to reach out to a person, express what they really feel from the inside, and, and that it wasn't a requirement, it wasn't anything with a due date, it was just because, hey, I appreciate you, tremendously powerful. I think other things that people can do is also to uh, always generate that, that culture of making deposits, kind of like a savings. Like, you know, maybe was, they always talk about compound interest. You add a little bit every day, kind of deposit into like a savings account. And then over time, it builds up uh, great savings. Same thing for trust. Add into it on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be like a big project date or anything in terms of a specific time. It's just like, hey, you know, I just want to say thanks. Just kind of reach out just uh, anytime it feels right. And over time, you build that culture of, of support. And then over time, I imagine, Doug, that over time, as we say thank you and appreciate our staff, they will feel more comfortable to open up to their team because they know that that trust has been built and the foundation is constantly being added to. Mm, that's a very good, very good point. However, I'm starting to wonder, too, how difficult can that be now? Or maybe there's ways that to adapt that we're trying to figure out um, in, in the times of COVID when we don't have sometimes that face-to-face that -face communication. I almost find it, it's almost easier to say or to forget to say thank you because you might just, if I'm, I had somebody that would be working with me and they'd be walking my office, I would, I would you know, if they were physically, I'd say, hey, you know, before I forget, I just really want to thank you for that, sending out that email and, and getting ahead of that. It's very easy to forget that with things going on COVID because we're, you know, a screen um, kind of displaced from everybody. Um, has that been something that you've seen within your work that the past year has just had a ton of compound issues on this issue about mental health and, and particularly around the workforce? That's a really interesting question, uh, Doug. And, uh, and certainly for, during these times of the COVID-19 pandemic, for those who can work from home uh, through remote work, or whether it's they, they, uh, the, the people uh, going in on site to, to, to do their work, I think everyone has agreed that this has been a big uh, 
tremendous change for them, both in terms of their own personal boundaries between work and personal life and their family life and their own personal time, whether whether they are at work physically or whether they are are, are sharing screen time. Uh, it's the idea that those boundaries traditionally have been blurred and, and one section can blur into and, and mix in with the other. Uh, but I think one thing that hasn't changed is that general connectivity with people. I think that's tremendously important, whether it's uh, someone that you've always just been seeing online through, let's say, uh, like a video chat or a video conference, or whether it's someone that you work in person. So that's really important to be able to connect in that way and to let people know that this is uh, this is important for, for, for everyone. Yeah. And, you know, kind of with that too, you know, what what are some other things, you know, organizationally, what, you know, we know there's this problem there. What, what are some of the other kind of structures that we can set up there? And what are some of the warning signs that we might see in professionals that, uh, whether they're over Zoom on an email or in person that we should be looking for and maybe uh, talk to them about it? And what's a gentle way to talk about it without it maybe scaring them off or making them feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah that's a, that's a, that's a really important point, Doug. I think the main thing is, Keep an open mind for all things. Uh, just like, let's say, um, in the cybersecurity world or in healthcare, there's certain things that are common things being common. It's the first thing that everyone kind of, uh, if you see something, kind of, you start building this thing called a differential diagnosis in your mind. The possibilities of why something is, to kind of rank order list that in your mind as you're learning about a situation. But always keep in mind that there could be something what we call zebras, like unusual things that are possible, but but not common, but there's still can be a possibility knowing that everyone is different. Keep that in mind always with online work, whether it's in times of COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, or even afterwards. Be able to understand that different things mean different people for all things. Initially, I thought uh, the COVID-19 situation would be stressful for all patients all across the board. You know, it's it's, it's it's uh, understandably highly stressful in the community. There's anxiety everywhere. We hear about it all in the news. But lo and behold, I've had a couple of patients tell me that they actually felt the opposite of of that during the um, during the pandemic in an unusual type of way. They felt less anxiety because they were limited in the amount of things they had to do or could do. They were isolated, and it allowed them to focus on the things that were more important for them. So that was very interesting. I felt. It, that is so true. And I, I'm one of those folks who, you know, normally was on the road 60, 70% of the time, constantly, you know, having to, you know, go do presentations in front of large audiences and speak, which I love. Um, but there's definitely, you know, you do it too many weeks in a row, <laughs> it starts taking its toll. And I'd say overall this year, I've gotten quite a bit done not traveling. Um, it, it's been really interesting and almost almost weird in a way where I get this almost like this this complex about it. I'm like, well, what's wait, when's the other shoe gonna drop? Because why are things going so well in such bad times? So I've I've almost had to, you know, come through this different level of acceptance of, yeah, it's it's okay and you're getting through this and everything's okay. And I, I'm not feeling guilty about it. It's been really weird given so many people that are struggling. Absolutely. You brought up the, the exact point. Not feeling weird about it and it's about giving yourself permission and giving everyone our own choice that says, hey, it's okay that we didn't do all the things that we had in our list originally for 2020. These are very different times, and to be able to stay safe, stay healthy each day, and to work our way through day by day in a way that feels good for us, you know, that could be a new place to start. And maybe if we look back at it and step back and say, you know, overall, all those things that we had on our list, were they really that important? It's always a time to reconsider and think about them. 
yeah, it's it's definitely put things in into perspective too. Um, in, in I think people have done a lot of self evaluation. One of the things I've noticed that's kind of tangential or part of um, you know the mental health, and particularly with cybersecurity, is the imposter syndrome that people feel of like, gosh, am I doing it right? Am I in the right right place? Um, they're going to find out any minute that I'm not as qualified. Have you have you helped folks with that? Maybe not just in cybersecurity, but other professions that have had the imposter syndrome and really had to kind of fight through it. Yeah, the, with imposter syndrome, it's it's a very 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 real feeling for for people that uh, that experience that, and there there sometimes can be a mixture of different feelings, such as anxiety, self doubt, maybe lack of confidence, or or maybe even the whole um, uh, uh, idea of like, are they serving the best that can in this role, and are they qualified to be here? So oftentimes, if we uh, ask them more questions about the, the thoughts and feelings behind those initial types of uh, issues, we find out that there can be many different sort of complex uncertainties or, or, or feelings or emotions that are actually weighing in on, uh, weighing on a lot of people in the back of their mind. And, uh, and so to be able to uh, uh, allow them to bring that forward, to be able to express it, and uh, to really understand for themselves from a very inner point of view uh, what that means for them. So, um, and to uh, build that confidence. So it's, it's a process certainly, but the first part, like you mentioned, is to go up and say it, hey, you know, I think I'm feeling that uh, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm the real deal or if I'm, I'm the person to be here. It's okay to say that because once they say that, it can be very tremendously uh, uh, powerful in terms of a first step forward. Yeah. It's, it's that first step, I think, is, is an anxious moment for a lot of things and when people are just expressing how they might feel about the imposter syndrome or the anxiety they feel about other things in the workplace. And the, it's almost that kind of uh, the, the proverbial thing of having to eat the frog and just tackle that hard thing. <laughs> um, but once you do, you're like, oh, maybe that wasn't that bad. And, and maybe others feel like that. And really getting other folks to talk about you know, the, the shared shared pain that they might have or the perspective that they have where they might not feel it. it. I found, you know, just having these conversations become so meaningful and important just because once the one the first person kind of talks about it, uh, then everybody else is like, oh, thank God you said something because I've been feeling the same way. And then you realize, okay, everybody's kind of in the same boat. Um, are, there, are there other ways that we can kind of maybe create these safe environments, maybe at a workplace Um or, or through mentoring or other ways to get people talking about these to realize, okay, it's the hardest thing was talking about it. Now I can solve it. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really important point to be able to generate that, that conversation that one has with oneself initially in terms of thinking about, Hey, how am I doing as a person? You know, what was challenging? What was hard? What worked well? What didn't? And to extend that conversation from just a single person with him or herself to someone else, a trusted friend at work, a colleague, a mentor, and to have that uh, a buddy, kind of having a, a buddy at work, or whether it's a outside the workplace or someone to be with, to have that conversation with another person. And then from there, you could kind of build on events, such as having a brown bag lunch, informal meeting, nothing on the agenda in terms of anything specific. People can come voluntarily to, to talk. And, you know, that's a good way to just kind of uh, start the initial conversation without having to make it too formal. Just be there if you want to. And just, it's okay if you just want to sit back and just listen, or if you want to participate, you know, just kind of keep an open mind to build that momentum of having a support group uh, of, of a mutual conversation. Yeah, it's uh, it really is just that. It's like you said, it's it's really that support group of just having having folks that 
you know, we'll, we'll listen to you without judgment and, and quite possibly say, you know, I've had similar things and it, it really helps people not feel so isolated. And one of the things that I've, I've also been looking at that's related to mental health and particularly around the diversity and inclusion aspect is like the neuro, 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 I can't if I can say it, neurodiversity aspects of things of, you know, we're not all wired the same. And I try to look at it saying, well, you know, maybe somebody that suffers from issues with anxiety, depression, or other uh, clinical mental health issues, or have things that could be, you know, somewhere on the spectrum of autism, something like that, that, you know, we're all not the same. Um, but we share a ton of similarities, and probably a lot of struggles. And getting folks to really kind of accept that, you know, can be very beneficial. So how are how have you seen the the challenges with neurodiversity become maybe easier or more talked about because like, for example my, my workplace you know we we have a neurodiversity group that I'm a part of and we talk about these things and it's 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 it does help remove some of that stigma say okay yeah this is okay to talk about um but also really you know accepting people for who they are and saying okay you just might interface a little bit differently like a mac or a pc you know the one's not better or worse it just has a different interface so it, it's how do we do a better job at that of trying to look at things more holistically about how people think and act in their mood in ways that becomes more accepting? Yeah. I think with every kind of organization, culture, and society, there's a common language in terms of what's spoken and what's understood in terms of how people communicate ideas. When they say a certain word, it means this. So certain organizations to become uh, – to be effective, uh, everyone has to kind of speak the same language. So, of course, there's going to be certain ways of, of how we describe things in terms of, you know, if, if, if reaching out to other people and getting support initially has to show some kind of bottom line uh, result in terms of, let's say, a balance sheet of how much uh, economic cost we save, then maybe they might start looking at in terms of, you know, taking care of mental health actually saves this amount of money uh, for, for the company from an economics point of view as an initial step to try to uh, allow that conversation to give it its, quote, safe space. You want to help them generate that safety zone. And if that's uh, what it takes sometimes initially, sometimes it might go that way. But deep down, what I feel that neurodiversity has its ultimate power is respect for an individual's talents and uniqueness, and not just to be able to say that, yes, this is what we need, but genuinely value it and go out and seek it. It helps us as a, as a society, not just for people and, and, and appreciating what uh, and who each of our if, if each of us are as people, but it also is great for organizations because just like in medicine, in cybersecurity, there are threats from things that are not known. Uh, same for healthcare teams. When there's a certain issue that comes up, there is going to be a person that takes the lead for either um, a segment of the time. It could be for a brief moment or a longer moment, but sometimes it's going to be a social worker. Sometimes it's going to be someone who understands what goes on in the streets for a homeless person at, at 1 a.m. at night. Sometimes it's going to be a medicine, uh, a medical pharmacology person that adjusts medications. Sometimes it's going to be someone who's uh, who's going to be watching them as a as a, as a nursing staff to making sure uh, that they're they're doing okay. So everyone takes a central leading role at all times. I see that the same with neurodiversity. That there's going to be a central role for everyone to play, and when that time comes, that person will be the main person, and we need them. Yeah, and it's I, I've really tried to champion for some of these folks that, yeah, they can, they, I find them that I think that the fault has been in a lot of ways we've designed 
the career progress goals of, okay, so you start as an analyst and you get to a senior analyst and then you get to some, maybe some level of a manager, director and you go through, but each, each level you kind of go up, you get more responsibility and you have to take on maybe more roles in managing other people and, or be attributed some level of sales. Um, so either whether you're an individual contributor, you have some measured output or sales, that's that in that way, or you move into a leadership role. And that's not for everybody. And I've seen some of the folks that I've seen go into senior management roles. They're managing only a few people, but a very, maybe a technical aspect of their work. And there's nobody better at it. it. There's nobody could be just because of the way they approach the problem. It's best than, better than anybody I, I could imagine doing it. But it's it, they've always kind of been looked at as almost these odd ducks of like, well, I don't get it. How can that person you know, grow into a manager role, they're, they're, they don't have all those people skills I look for. I'm like, because you're, you're not defining the problem properly. <laughs> what we need is this. They meet that criteria. You're just making up in your mind that they don't have all these other criteria that don't have anything to do with that role. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and going to the idea of the neurodiversity and why that's so important, fundamentally, it's about empathy. It's people understanding truly who and what other people are from a genuinely human being point of view. That's tremendously powerful. We can't teach that in any class. Yeah, it's uh, it's my my goal every year. Besides uh, whatever some of my lofty goals, it's every year I have to remind myself. You know, this year I have to just try to be more patient and more empathetic. Even if I can just be look back and say I was a little bit more this year. I feel like I'm I'm growing <laughs> as a human because it's it's hard. It's easy to get pulled into the moment, and particularly somebody like me that fuses with anxiety or you know clicking onto to really intense problems. It's it's very easy to to lose the bigger picture. Absolutely, and especially since things like in cybersecurity and the medical field, like, you know, everyone, I think if you ask everyone who's in this type of career, nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, there's too much work here, you know, I, I, I need to take a break, and, you know, because they always worry about, like, their letter of recommendation, get promoted, how they just got to look for their application for their next job, into residency, into medical school, and so forth, and it's this whole cycle of, of not wanting to appear weak and for uh, for impacts of their career or in, in, in how they're going to proceed in their careers. Um, but we have to move away from that and not just move away from that, but essentially abolish it if we can, because what we need is to have people come to us as people, as human beings, because when things become uncertain and when there's new things from left field, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take people who we trust and who feel good about themselves and, and protect the safety of themselves and for the people that they serve. Definitely. And one of the things I kind of wanted to close out with on this is what I, what I love how you presented this at RSA and other, other talks I've seen is, you know, building a more resilient human security network. You know, what are, what are some of the call to action? What are some of the things that we can do? Um, and, and you covered some really great areas that I think, okay, yeah, we, there, there's, there's some steps we can take here. So kind of maybe walk through some of those, those areas that you think that can help overcome some of these problems. Right. I think, Exactly like what you're doing here, Doug, to have leadership at all levels from everyone's background or different walks of life at all different parts of the organization, whether they're at the top or at entry level or anywhere in between. Everyone can play a role in terms of mental health because deep down, it's fundamentally within everyone's DNA as a human being. Deep down, everyone kind of knows what makes them feel good and what doesn't make them feel well and, and how they're doing. And, and although I, I, I serve as a guide to help people uh, recommend different pathways for, for wellness and, and to take care of themselves and, and to, to have mental health, deep down, I always sort of believe that everyone has it within themselves and it's our job to help them unlock that potential to be able to have them uh, uh, move forward. So with that, we'll provide the landscape to help uh, uh, foster that kind of conversation. It's that 
idea of safety zones everywhere. Every interaction that you talk with uh, or have with a person, like let's say if we're having this conversation right now, we want to create a safety zone. From, you know, if you look at your uh, your calendar uh, and uh, you have an appointment with someone from this time to that time, you say, hey, that's going to be a zone of safety. Now, how do I, what do I do to make that as safe a place as we can? And so if we have that safety mindset and secure mindset, then I think every interaction will that sort of culture behind it. It's a deliberate, purposeful mindset. Yeah, the, the one thing I really like how you framed it in, in some of the presentations was having the constant awareness about one's own mental health status. So being that that level of self-aware, uh, both in yourself, it then helps build empathy. It then it's, to me, that's like such a important keystone in, 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 in dealing with just yourself and other people because kind of being in the moment and, and realizing where you are in your own journey with mental health uh, puts a lot of things in perspective. And I find when I stop and do that, I go, you know what? I think I'm like overreacting. This person's probably stressful too. I'm not going to send them that email. What was the point of flaming them? It's not going to make my job any better. I just got to step back from this. And then, you know, maybe I'll talk to them offline about something. You know, I don't know what that other person's going through and I, they don't know what I'm going through. <laughs> so maybe I just have to kind of step back and again, build that empathy by being more self-aware which is, uh, I think the, you know, that I found at least for me to be the first step in empathy is really saying, okay, well, where are you in this journey, Doug? Uh, (laughs) And before you, you know, you start judging somebody else. Yes, absolutely. And it's very important to give everyone permission for ourselves to be able to speak about mental health. We don't need to be a mental health professional. We don't have to be a psychiatrist. We don't really need to know about cybersecurity or mental health in terms of having this conversation. All we need to do is to be open and uh, trustworthy human beings to be able to express and want to hurt, uh, want to want to help a fellow colleague, a friend, or a family member, or or an organization to provide that help and just speak to that person or that to that group from a human being's point of view. So you know we don't worry about like you know whether or not you know we have the specialty expertise in this kind of area. No, it's deep down everyone already has it. We're human beings. This is the human network of security. I love it. Right. I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can folks find you online? Uh, yeah. So um, uh, maybe the way you found me, I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Ryan Lee. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's just another form and a, another venue to be able to uh, exchange ideas and to, 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 to learn about mental health in the field of cybersecurity and, uh, and to generate that overall conversation of, of keeping everyone well, keeping everyone safe now and in the future. I love it. Well, keep up the good work and let's keep the conversations going with everybody. I think, I think this is the time more than ever to, to bring up these issues and and fight the stigma about it because it's something we've all, we've all had some type of mental health challenge at some point in our lives, (laughs) you know, in this year, this has probably been for a lot of people. So again, like you said, being empathetic with people and starting that discussion, um, I'm all for it. So I really appreciate you taking the time today and all the work you do um, in the field. Thank you very much, Doug. And as we always say, security always starts in the mind. It's, uh, it's from everyone taking care of themselves and to be well. And that is how we are going to be the best for ourselves and the people that we serve. So everybody, uh, keep well and stay safe. And thank you so much, Doug, for this opportunity. And we'll look forward to uh, building this conversation uh, in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.